Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the journalist and podcaster, John Gruber. John, welcome to the show. Good to be here. So I, I said journalist, and I'm old-fashioned enough to think of you as a journalist, but you are you, you write almost exclusively online, and the meaning of journalist has changed remarkably since you first started doing this. So with that in mind, just briefly tell us for listeners who may not be aware of you and your work, just tell us who you are and what you do. Oh, that's a good question. Well, um, I write my own website called Daring Fireball at the URL daringfireball.net. I've been writing there since August of 2002. So I'm coming up on 18 years, uh, which sounds terribly long <laughs> for something that feels still feels new to me, which I guess is a good sign. Um, I am probably best known, almost certainly best known for my writing about writing about Apple. Um, but I don't and never have really considered the site Apple specific at the time. And even <laughs> in the years since there were a lot of sites that came about that would put Mac in the name, you know, Mac minute, Mac, whatever, uh, as the Apple turns, that sort of thing. And I, you know, I, I never liked those names anyway, even if I were going, going to write and devote myself specifically and only to the stuff about Apple, I still probably wouldn't make a name like that. Um, but I never set out for that. I always, you know, more or less thought I would just write about, I mean, I'm not surprised I wound up writing so much about Apple over the last 18 years, but basically I write about what I'm interested in. Uh, I tend to, if I had to compare myself to, you know, I'm 47, 48. I forget how old I am. 47. <laughs> Don't worry. Hey, I'm, I'm a year younger. I, I'm the same age and I have exactly the same problem. <laughs> if I compared myself to anything that I thought of growing up in the pre-web world, it would be to a columnist. And, you know, where where does like a newspaper columnist in the traditional form fall compared to other quote unquote journalists? I mean, journalist is an interesting word and we can talk about it. But in a newspaper context, there's always been and even to this day, they're still talking about it. There's still it's it's a controversy that just came up this week here on our side of the of the pond with the Wall Street Journal with. The, their reporting, the newsroom writing a letter to their publisher asking for clearer lines of separation on the website between their reporting, which is actually terrific and very straight despite their reputation, and their opinion pages, which are very right wing politically and are so right wing that they've sort of slanted the, the world's opinion of what the Wall Street Journal means as a brand. Mm. Reporter. Everybody knows what that means. Columnist, I I think fewer people really think about, but it's, you know, it, if you're a writer, you kind of know. Are they both journalists? Yeah, I would say so. They're supposed to be. Um, I've always thought of myself as a columnist, you know, and I write about design stuff, technology stuff. Um, and, I, you know, I think, why did I wind up writing so much about Apple over the last 18 years? Well, look at what Apple's done over the last 18 years is my story for that. Yeah, I've heard you talk about that before, and it's absolutely right. It's it's difficult to be a journalist, especially one interested in and with a background in technology like you, and not talk about Apple. How could you not? You know, the, the, right. possibly the most influential technology company of the last 15 or 20 years. Um, so how did you get started in 
journalism per se not you know not just writing but specifically what made you think okay i want to rather than say writing fiction or whatever uh because you are the first non-fiction writer i've had on the show um so how did you decide okay what i want to do is as you say not quite reporting but sort of opinion writing if you like uh by quite literally doing that <laughs> at the student newspaper at drexel university here in philadelphia where i i went to university uh, my degree is in computer science, uh, and I did graduate with, with that degree, but I was far more involved and interested and devoted way more time and my attention to being in the student newspaper. Um, uh, my freshman year, Drexel's a kind of a weird school here. Most universities in the U S have four year undergraduate programs, um, uh, on the traditional schedule, Drexel and most of the, especially the scientific sort of ones like engineering and computer science has five-year programs where in the middle three years you go to university, you go to class for six months and then you have structured, they call them co-ops, but they're like in paid internships. They are paid for six months of the year, six months of school, six months of um, internships that are part of your degree you have to do it to get your degree and half of your class is in school fall and winter and working spring and summer and the other half does it the other way around so that the companies that participate in the program have a non-stop every six months they can fill these internships spots with students year-round um I, my freshman year, didn't participate in a school newspaper at all. Instead, I, I wrote my own <laughs> gag newsletter for the dormitory <laughs> uh, with just fake stories. It was sort of like a version of The Onion just for the dormitory I was in at Drexel in 1991 to 92. And I had a friend who went and wrote at the student newspaper and he was like, you should, you know, you should, you should just come there. You know, they're desperate for writers, you know, you should do it. And I have to tell you, I, it's part of my personality. I hate submitting my work for somebody else to accept or, or decline. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a feeling that that might have been one of the reasons that you kind of branched out and went solo, but we'll come back to that later. Yeah. I would much rather, uh, well, not much rather. I, I, I would prefer to have as large an audience as I could like m most people who write, um, it is vindicating to know that many people read what you write. But not at the expense of having to go through a gatekeeper. Right. And so I didn't for my first year. Second year I did. And I didn't want to write. I didn't want to become a reporter. I don't want to, I mean, a student newspaper, it's terribly boring. You're writing about the student council and what they're doing and what the university president's initiative for, I don't know, whatever the hell they do and tuition rates and all that. I don't want to do that. I wanted to write op-ed columns and about funny stuff. And so I submitted one my second year and it was accepted. You used to have what you had to do. This is like 1992, 93. You'd come in with it on a floppy disk and then they would put it in one of the, we had, it was all Mac comp uh, campus. So uh, it's sort of the roots of my Apple affinity. Um, but you'd come in with a floppy disk and they'd take it and put it on uh we didn't even have email, really. I had email because I was in the computer science program, but that was like we were ahead of the curve. We were like, it was like we're like at the beginning of the wave. And like by my second or third year, everybody campus wide, I was in school when the whole school got email. Um, 
But like, I think I found out that my column was published, my first one, when the paper came out on the next Friday. Uh, I don't even think they had a way of contacting me. I don't recall because <laughs> they wouldn't have sent email and I don't know that I would have wanted to give them my phone number. But it was in. It was a thrill. I was hooked. They told me, oh, my God, this is so good. I had that sense in the back of my head that I think a lot of writers do. Um like reading the stuff in the, the student newspaper, like I could do so much better than this. Like this is, this is, most of this is tripe. Um, and that seemed to be their reaction as well. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I, I think I was trying to keep myself, it was a weekly newspaper uh, every Friday, the triangle, uh, Drexel triangle. Um, I actually forget what the triangle stands for. It's because Drexel University's motto is something like art, science, and something else. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say engineering, but that's so close to science. I don't know what it is. So Drexel's university motto is something I've so well drilled into my head that I've forgotten it. But art and science alone seems like all you need. Uh, Technology and the liberal arts. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but isn't it funny that that's sort of, you know, that's Steve Jobs' parting words to the world. Um, but that was where the name Triangle came from. Uh, and anyway, uh, my path up the ladder, somewhere that first year, this would be my second year of university, early on, uh, I submitted a column. And most of my stuff, you know, some of it was about current events that were in jokes for the campus something about you know what's going on on the university and would really only make sense to fellow students who were there or maybe it was about current events nationwide you know early on in the bill clinton presidency or i guess it was the election year in 92 um that sort of thing and i wrote a column and i had a joke and of course you know i'd get it every friday i would read it and the one week i noticed about halfway through one of my paragraphs had been rewritten like and a joke was like the punchline to a joke was rewritten in a way that i thought thought took all the humor out of it and it was the first my first bad experience with an editor (laughs) and i thought hmm and i just completely assumed that i had made some sort of grammatical error and in the course of correcting it they you know and i was like well i got to figure out what mistake and i went to my original and i looked at it couldn't figure out what was wrong with it and I was like, well, I got to learn this because I don't want this to happen again. And so I asked, uh, the guy's name was Francis. He was the op-ed editor at the time. I came in with my next column and I said, hey, Francis. He was a very nice guy. I said, hey, Francis, what? I got a question. Hey, last, my last column, and I point to the one in the actual newspaper and I, I said, here's what I wrote. What, what did I do wrong? And he said, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. Your column was one line too long. I needed to shorten it up one line to make it fit. And Ah, so I rewrote that paragraph (laughs) in the middle to shorten it up a little so it would fit. And before he even finished telling me the explanation, I thought I need to become the op-ed editor of this newspaper so that this never happens again. (laughs) (laughs) And I believe if you went through the archives of the Drexel Triangle... I, I think I was the next op-ed editor, uh, and if I wasn't, I was close. Uh, and my goal was, A, never to, never to have my column edited <laughs> for that reason again. And, you know, B, then I'd, in addition to not having the content edited for that, I could ensure that my column was on the top of the right-hand page of the op-ed section. <laughs> uh, and I enjoyed the... Uh, 
laying it out. I enjoyed learning Quark Express and doing the gra- – I have already had that sort of you know interest. Like I said, I had spent my freshman year making my own newsletter and doing that and fascinated with learning about typography and stuff, all completely self-taught. Were you laying that out like in PageMaker or something? Uh, I forget what I used my freshman year. It might have been PageMaker. I definitely used PageMaker at some point, but the, the newspaper used Quark Express, and I immediately took to Quark Express like a fish that had never been in water. I, I, I know that the company had a bad reputation for anybody who was around at the time, but I thought that the software was truly remarkable and cogent. Oh no, Quark Express was an yeah, Quark three point two was the yes three point three two three three point three two R five no R five really was nerdy. patch level five but yeah was, that was the absolute pinnacle of you know fast layout computer layout that worked in a way that people who would come up through yeah. what we used to call the lick and stick yep. uh, method could use. It was so fast. It was faster than soft, a lot of software today, it even really though it was, was running yeah. on mid mid nineteen nineties, uh, you know, computers. Uh, you you probably don't know this, but I was a magazine designer for many years, uh, and so yeah, I am very very familiar with layout programs and what have you. And Quark was just yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. It's no surprise to me at all that the student newspaper used it. Well, I took to it and became the op ed editor. Um, and, you know, at that point became more involved in the paper and eventually became the editor-in-chief. Uh, and we had a terrific, for a, a school that did not have a journalism program, uh, we had a terrific run in my time. And there were just a handful of other students who were with me who were terrific and people who went on to careers at like the Associated Press and someone who, who actually went to work at the Wall Street Journal we had a photographer who went on to named Noah Addis, who went on to a career as a professional photojournalist. Um, and so all of these things that are very, if you know my work and you know that I care about how things look, like all of a sudden this Drexel Triangle went from looking like a newspaper made by a school without a journalism program to, in my opinion, and I still have a bunch of issues, I still think it looks great. And we, and including just absolutely great looking photography and good layout. Um, but that's how, you know, I got into writing, uh, got into design, but I had this computer science background. I graduated in 96 and what's going on in 1996. It's the web and it's stuff like that. Um, and so I, you know, mostly made a living doing building websites and stuff like that for people still doing graphic design too on a freelance basis and still thinking in the back of my head, boy, I'd, I'd like to be a writer. So how did you, I mean, were you doing it, were you writing for other web publications or something in your spare time while you were, while you had the day job? No, not really. Um, I didn't really try to do anything professionally and uh, just wrote a lot online, wrote a lot for news groups, wrote a lot of email. Uh did a lot of nerd, just nerdy stuff, uh, and just more or less wrote like on U- Usenet and stuff like that. But I, uh, at one point, the one of the last real day jobs I had, I went to work for a company called Barebone Software, the makers of BB Edit, um, and worked there for two thousand for about two years, two thousand two thousand two. And at the time, they had and and I was just I think my title was marketing director or something like that, but I was sort of it's a small company and it's sort of a jack of all trades type thing 
the one of the small ironies was that I was the only person at the company with a computer science degree, and none of the actual <laughs> engineers did. I, I think Rich Siegel, the founder, has a degree in physics, and I know Jim Correa, who was there at the time, also has a degree in physics, and one of the other developers never even went to college, and I had a computer science degree, and it was you know writing the manual and doing the website and ads and not stuff actually like that. coding yeah <laughs> right but i you know but i was like a very technically adept user and at the time barebones had a, an email client a short-lived email client in the grand scheme of things called mailsmith which was more or less bb edit the text editor as an email client and this made a lot more sense at the time when email was a plain text type thing and you you know you'd have all the text editing power of a professional pro- programmers editor like BB Edit in your mail client, and it was very scriptable. Um, and so um, one of the we had a, a very active user group, and somebody on the user group, you know, they'd say, "I want to write an Apple script that does blank." And I would often, if it sounded like an interesting problem, I'd I would try to solve it, and then I could publish it on the mailing list in a way that it became a reference that other people could search for. Oh, when you want to do blank and Apple script, you can, here's an example that Gruber answered in this one. Somebody asked, Hey, I would just uh, satisfy my own curiosity. I'd like to figure out, you know, what's the word count of my outgoing mail for the last year or something like that. And so I was like, Ooh, that's interesting. And so I wrote a script to do it and, and was smart enough to ignore quoted text in an email so like oh, right, anything yeah. that you qu- quoted when you were replying, it would skip and it was, so it would, you know, do its best, best effort to actually only count original words that you wrote. And I, I ran it against my own outgoing email from the last, you know, five or six years at the time. This is sometime around 2001, 2002. And it, I forget what the number was, but it was, you know, I don't know, 180,000 words or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, ah, sh- shoot, I got a, I must've made a bug. And I was like double checking my math, and I'm like, no. And I'm like, oh, well, well, that doesn't, that sounds way too high. And it's like, well, what's the length of an average book? I was going to say, that's like two novels worth. Yeah. Yeah. It's like everybody, <laughs> everybody who's listening to this show probably has done that search. Like, hey, what is this? How many words are in a book? Uh, and it was, you know, multiple books, thick books worth of email. <laughs> that I had written over the last several years. And I felt in the back of my head, like even though I hadn't actually published anything since I was at at Drexel and graduating in 96, I still felt like I was a better writer than I was then, even though I hadn't published anything. And I think that's why, because I was writing, right? And the truth of it is you could just sit there in a cabin and write and file it away in a safe. You are a writer, you know, publishing isn't what makes you a writer. And you'll get better as Yes, well. and I really felt like my muscles had developed uh, tremendously. And, you know, it really does help going from age 22 to 26 or 27. That's, you know, in those interim years, 99, 2000, 2001, weblogs, blogs, I don't even know when we started calling them that, started coming up. And I saw it as that is something I could do. Right. This seems like a, it, both a medium that what I want to do and what I'm drawn to do and what I'm good at would be suited and gets me over the whole, I don't want to write for somebody else. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go to a real newspaper. Like, and part of the thing about becoming a quote unquote real columnist in a print newspaper, like in Philadelphia here, 
is that the path to doing that isn't just go up and say, I'd like to have a column in the second <laughs> section of the newspaper. You, you got to like earn, you know, you got to start by being a reporter and going to city hall and taking meeting notes about parking spots and stuff like that. I just didn't want to do any of that. You know, I, I really just had no appetite for it. Um, and you know, so I had it in the back of my head that I should start my own site and I'll just write it. And it just came down to what should I call it? You know, what should it look like? What exactly would the format of the post be, et cetera. And it mm -hmm. took, just took me a little bit of time to get there. And, and then I guess the last part was I really kind of had to leave the job at bare bones to really get that off. Cause I knew I wanted to write about Apple and stuff. And I don't think that's such an issue today. Like if somebody were working literally at Barebone Software, which is still around, or any other similar uh, company of similar stature in in the ecosystem. But at the time, writing about Apple and having public opinions about you know like the new computers that were coming out or the new OS, while still being one of their developer partners, seemed. Not, you know, it wasn't like somebody said, hey, you can't do that, but it just seemed like that wasn't something you should do. It was much more frowned upon back. Yeah, it's just, right. things have become so much. And I, I think, and this is a whole different discussion, but I think a lot of this comes down to the modern economy and the way that everybody is expected to have three or four different gigs on the go just to get by. Right. Uh, and so it's, everybody's a lot more lax about the idea that, yeah you know, you can do two or three different things and you can have a sort of degree of separation between them, even though everybody knows it's you doing all of them. Um, but as you say, if you're working for yourself, then you just don't have that concern at all. It's funny, actually, that, yeah, as I say, it turns out, so you and I are about the same age and uh, have had sort of similar eras in a way, because I went, I became a full-time writer in 2002 as well. Uh so, in fact, just a few months after you launched Daring Fireball, it sounds like. And what you said about you being at university when everybody suddenly got email, I was at on a uh, magazine about the internet, actually, called .NET at Future Publishing. Um, and when I joined in 98, I think it was, uh, we were one of the only magazines in the company that had unfettered access to the web from our work machines. Hmm. Um, and then I'd been there about a year when the wall started coming down and everybody was starting to demand it. And so, you know, and then everybody in the company was then loud and these were all magazines, it was a huge publisher. Um, and everybody in the company was then allowed to have unfettered access to the web. But for a long time, it was us Mac format, uh, and a couple of the PC magazines were basically the only editorial staff that were allowed to just go on the web whenever we felt like it. And that's such a strange thought to have now. <laughs> it is kind of crazy, right? It's hard yeah. to, hard to, hard to believe that that was as short ago as it, as it really is. Right. I mean, to <laughs> what, you and I, it feels like a long time cause it's our lives, but really it's the blink of an eye. One of the things, one of the places where I worked too, uh, as I worked at, Philadelphia Newspapers, which is the company, still is, I think, the company that owns, the, there's two daily newspapers in Philadelphia, the Inquirer and Daily News, and I forget when they came under one company's umbrella, but it was sometime maybe in the early 80s. But the two newspapers are very independent um, editorially. Um, and I went to work there 
but not in the as like writing for the newspaper either of the newspapers at all it was in their what they called the promotions department which was like their in-house ad agency that did the ads anything promotional or graphic it was a graphic design job so anything that they would use uh either to make the ads to like tell people to subscribe to the newspaper or anything else the advertising sales staff would need like flyers and stuff to help sell ads you know it was just in in in-house graphic design for the newspapers themselves uh, never was full time, but I, I worked there full time hours for some stretches when they needed help as a freelancer, and I loved it. And it was good people, really, really good people. Um, and I remember we, we used to play softball on Fridays, and you know, and there'd be like you know thirteen, fourteen regulars, and we'd play softball. And like six weeks into it, I found out that out of like the thirteen, fourteen regulars, that there were eight people who had won Pulitzer prizes. Oh wow! <laughs> I was. <laughs> And I was like, wait, I, you know, I was young at the time, you know, I'm, I'm like 23 or something like that. I'm like, I need to stop trying to hit the ball so hard. I can't hurt any of these people. These, these are, <laughs> these are like the most important people in the company. Holy cow. And, uh, but one of the things that was great about working there was that you'd come in and it was a grand old building and you'd come in and there were just big stacks of both newspapers right there. Everybody could come in, you could get both newspapers and it was perfectly, the only place I'd ever been in my life where it was perfectly acceptable to sit down at your desk, put your feet up and just read the newspaper <laughs> on the clock. It was like, this is magnificent. Oh, that, that's that's only because you haven't worked in uh, professional editorial staff by the sounds right. of it, because when the when whatever you're working on is published, that's the first thing everybody does. Like when I was in magazines, <laughs> when we would get the copies of that month's mag back from the printers, right, right, it was the whole staff. It was down tools. Everybody starts reading the magazine, right, and inev- inevitably shout it for spotting typos and shouting them across the room to the right. uh, features editor or whatever. <laughs> Every other job I'd ever had in my life, it was you know you might as well pull your pants down, you know, in terms. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the appropriateness of just reading the newspaper at your yeah. desk, uh, but not there. It was great, but uh, I totally get it where it was. And I remember it being like an issue. It would be like a thing they'd write about in newspapers, like, should people have access to the internet at work? Won't they be distracted? And it's like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but also, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, and I remember, I mean, just to go off on a tangent about that business of giving people access to the web, I remember that it it became a real issue that editorial staff were having arguments with management about saying like, we need, because not every magazine even had email at that right. point. And it was like, we need email. This is how the world is going, you know? And this, as I say, this was a, a big publisher that published lots and lots of magazines that were based around technology, magazines about the internet like I say, Mac format magazine, uh, loads of PC format uh, magazines and loads of gaming magazines as well. That's what they were built on was video games magazines. And so the staff were like, we really, really need access to the, you know, the internet at large and for everybody to have email because that's just, yeah, the way things are going. And now the thought that you would even have to fight for that is absurd. Right. All right, well, let's move on to the actual writing then. What is a typical day like for you? Because you you say that you kind of think of yourself as a columnist, but most of what you uh, post to Daring Fireball, most of what you write are shorter, not exactly reporting, but sort of semi-reporting pieces. Um, Yeah, but that fits into my idea as a columnist too. It's sort of like I do, because one of the things that I think of with Daring Fireball 
And I do. I, like on a typical day, I don't have any one post that's long or is in and of itself column length. It's, you know, uh, oftentimes the best days, I think, are ones where I don't type many words, but it's they're very pithy. And they're, I'm linking elsewhere. You know, here's an article at the New York Times. Here's an article somebody else wrote on their blog. Here's something. And here's my comment. Here's a quote from it. Here's my commentary. But the way that I still see that and feel in my bones that it's like a column is that to me, the ideal reader of Daring Fireball is somebody who, you know, has their own thing and has a busy day and a busy job in their own work. And then at some point they think, ah, I need a break. I got a cup of coffee. Let's go see what's at Daring Fireball. Goes to Daring Fireball and starts reading down and might read the last four or five things together. And even though they might be on four or five different things, different topics, different links, they flow together in a way, right? And that used to be a format of column, not typical, but there were columnists who sort of had that style where their newspaper column wasn't one 700-word essay. It was maybe six or seven items, right? Gossip columns were often in that style. I was just going to say showbiz columns. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, showbiz columns, gossip columns. Uh, Larry King had a column in the USA Today and it was it, it was beyond parody because it was just like, it was a combination of like things he heard from his celebrity pals who were all ancient. <laughs> you know, and then just like observations, like, you know, uh, just in the middle of this, like his USA Today column, which ran like once a week, and it would just be like each paragraph was its own thing. But in the middle of it, you know, with a bunch of like celebrity things and things he heard or some old timey actress he ran into at lunch who's look, still looks dynamite. He would just put in the middle of it like Wednesday. What's the deal with how we spell Wednesday? Isn't that a lo <laughs> weird looking word? And then it would just move on to, you know, something else about President Clinton or something like that. And but it it was brilliant. It was actually a very good column and people made fun of it cuz it was so idiosyncratic, but people made fun of it because it was worth reading and it had a feel. And that's how I sort of feel about the short posts at Daring Fireball is that they don't they're not meant to stand on their own. If you are such a devoted fan that you have an RSS subscription and you get a notification every time I post something and you read it in and of itself, great. I'm happy to have you as a devoted enthusiastic reader, but I think most people read them once a day or maybe even once a week, right? Like the idea is that you could just come by my website once a week if you're busy if that's the level of your fan and just start reading down from the top and it should all sort of flow together in a way. But idiosyncrasy is no bad thing. No. And, I mean, this is as true for fiction as nonfiction. You know, I, I right. bang on this drum all the time is that you have to write the way you write because there's all, you know, there's no good trying to emulate somebody else because that other person already exists. Right. What you have is your style and that's what makes you unique. That's what makes you sellable. Right. And we call it a voice, having a voice, right? Right. And it is, it is absolutely true. And the Larry King example is terrific because he did have literally a great voice. He was a radio broadcaster, true, yeah. I think still is even. But his written column in the newspaper, you could, if you knew his actual voice, you'd hear the column in his voice. You'd hear it. it you couldn't help but do it. And it's true. It is it, people who have only ever published the written word and never actually go on podcasts or the radio or TV th that your favorite writer has a voice. That's, that's what makes them your favorite writer. 
Well, it's like you've. I assume you must have seen the the famous tweet thread of the Midnight Society with all the the sort of young versions of the horror writers. Mm. Um, the, the reason that thread is so brilliant and so funny is that they are all written in the voice of those writers, and you can tell immediately if you're familiar with those writers. You can imagine them writing, stroke saying those things in mm-hmm. this fantasy scenario um, because they're also immediately identifiable. Yes, absolutely. So, what's my typical day like? It is so super boring. I am a late riser. Uh, typically, it helps professionally in some way that I live more or less on. I live on the East Coast in Philadelphia of the United States, but I more or less sleep on West Coast time. Uh, I wake up late. I make coffee. Uh, I read, uh, and you know, I keep a list and I, you know, just start thinking what, what do I want to, what do I want to write? You know, and, uh, you know, when it hits me, I write. So, I mean, you say you keep a list where do you, cause I know that you are a, <laughs> a, a longhand notebook user, but I mean, do you just keep everything in notes or do you use your notebook longhand or what? Man, here's here's where I get the flop sweat because it, <laughs> not because I'm secretive about it, but because I know that trying to put this into words, all of a sudden it starts sounding like maybe I need to go into the padded room. Oh no! Believe me, every other guest that I've had on this show would say the same thing about their own process, and myself included. Really, you're among friends. <laughs> I, for the most part, keep stuff. I I always keep a small notebook in my pocket, in my back pocket. A thin little, you know, typically not always the field notes brand, but if you're familiar with them, most of the ones I have are field notes, uh, thin enough that it's unobtrusive in a back of the pants pocket, always have a pen with me and I keep ideas there. Something that anything I don't want to forget, I write it down and I, I hesitate to call it a system, but I like to have a two page spread. I'll put the date at the top of the left hand page and then anything I don't want to I want to do today, tomorrow, I write down. Uh, and it's just sort of a little list. I don't think it looks crazy. I wouldn't say that's crazy at all. I mean, that is a system. It may be bare bones, to right. coin a phrase, but it, it's a system. If I'm busy, I can fill it up. Or if there's just a lot going on, uh, I can might fill it up in a day or two. And then I just turn the page. You know, And as I do things and finish things, I'll cross them off. I'll try to organize them spatially where if I actually need to run a few errands in the real world that have nothing to do with my work, but it's just, you know, things I need to do on a, you know, if I leave the house, I want to do all three of these things. I'll group them together so I can see them there or, you know, just a grocery list I might put on the right side page. And then if it starts filling up, I just turn the page to a new two page spread and start all over again. And do I cross off everything? No, absolutely not. But then I have all these notebooks. And if I think, hey, didn't I think that there was an article in the Columbia Journalism Review I wanted to link to? And I can just flip back three, four pages. And I'm like, huh. And then I go back seven pages like, oh, there it is. Oh, that was a month ago. Oh, but here it is. Uh you know, so I'm not, I, it satisfies my need that I know I haven't forgotten something, even though it's not in my mind anymore. It's in the notebook. Yeah. Uh, now, do I do everything on paper? No. I use right now. I use Apple Notes, which I think is pretty good in terms of it's pretty simple. 
it doesn't get in the way with any kind of extraneous stuff. And it's there on the phone, it's on my iPad, and it's on all of you know the Macs that I'm using, and the syncing is rock solid. And so if something starts turning into a little bit more like an outline of an article, it's not just a job. I don't really, I can't say that I write my articles longhand. I write like just the fundamental notion for it. If I start jotting down ideas and collecting URLs for it, I put them in an Apple note. Yeah, I use notes as well. It is uh, the, the the I was going to say the new version of it. It's not new anymore. It's quite a few years old now, but I'm sure you also think of it as the new version of yeah, notes the same yeah. way I do. Yeah. And it is yeah. so much better. Um, yeah, I call that memory offloading. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I'm the same thing. I get it out of my memory, write it down. And that yeah. way I know that it's there, even though it's not at the front of my own mind. There there was a system that, that was briefly phenomenally popular called getting things done gtd uh maybe this is like 15 years ago and i'm sure there are still people who listen to it and i i couldn't get into it it's too it was a very it was very much a system you know where there were rules and i get why people liked it it just didn't fit for me but the one thing with the gtd that stuck with me was the idea of having a quote-unquote trusted system and if you trust that you've captured an idea or a thing to do in a way that you trust it's a weight off your shoulders figuratively yeah and <laughs> i think that the actual gtd system would be uh aghast at uh the haphazardness of my system and where you know how many different places something might be because i make it sound as though everything's either in a notebook on paper or in apple notes but you know there are also it's more fuzzy than that text files and bb edit where i've actually started writing an article um but i do do a good job of like like the linchpin of my quote-unquote system is that i have a I, i can't remember stuff in my brain very well but I remember where I put stuff yes. very well. Like, so like I'm, oh, I'm not going to say unerring, but I'm almost always certain if I, if I have that idea that I had a couple of ideas about a, uh, Anthony Johnston, there's something about, his, you know, his podcast that I was going to link to. I know where it is. If, if I think it's in one of my paper notebooks, it is right. It, I might underestimate how many pages back I have to flip, but that's where it is. Yeah, so the problem with GTD, I mean, I read through it all as well, yeah, and is that it's aimed very much at managers. It's aimed at mm-hmm. business people, you know, not at creative people or writers or whatever. Um, I actually go through all this. I have a book coming out later this year called The Organized Writer, which is my own little system that I use. And it's the same, but it's the same kind of principle of like, I started out taking bits from other systems and then eventually it just became my system yeah. with all this other stuff in it and yeah writing things down so you don't forget them and calendar management so it's a whole it's a whole thing um merlin actually our mutual friend merlin mann yeah. has uh, he's read an early copy of that book uh, mm. very very kindly gave me a quote for it um but yeah it is you've got to have some kind of system and it can be very complex or it can be very lightweight but you've got to have some method of knowing where an idea is because and this is true of fiction writers as well, you're going to have lots of ideas and your brain simply cannot remember all of them in detail because it's going to get, they're going to get pushed out by new ideas all the time. Yeah. I, well, I think for me personally, and I think this would apply to any writer, is when things are going good 
meaning you just you know you're you're having a stretch of days maybe if you're lucky a couple of weeks where you just feel like hey this is going well the words are coming out of my fingers well for me if that's happening and the actual words I'm publishing are are doing pretty well on a consistent basis then I'm also generating more ideas than I can possibly write yeah right and and like if it goes bad I it's like I'm not writing and I'm not having ideas, right? And and there is no in between. It never ever ever reaches any kind of equilibrium no. <laughs> where the and but I think that it you think that that's the way it's supposed to work. You think I I I do. I I yeah. it, my but it never sense, does. And I don't know anybody fiction or non-fiction for whom that's true. And yet you're right. We all think that it should work that way. And yet it doesn't for anyone. <laughs> and and so if you don't have that system, then you lose both ways. On the one side, you're not writing and you don't have ideas. But even when you are writing, you also are losing ideas, which is the worst, it may be a worse feeling. Yeah. Right? So at least if you're capturing them somehow, you know you're not losing ideas. And you're just, just give up on the idea. It's like trying to balance something on the tip of a pyramid. It, you know, which is that equilibrium point where you have uh, 2,000 words of good ideas and time to write 2,000 words. And there you go. End of the day, all of my ideas captured. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't, um, my brain is empty. Turn on the t- television. <laughs> I wake up tomorrow and With start all over ideas, again. Yeah. You, yeah. It's like trying to balance a marble on top of a pyramid. It's never going to happen. You're always going to be on one side or the other. And at least if you're on the side where you're being productive, if you're capturing those good ideas, you don't have that sense of dread of, oh my God, I had this great, I knew I had this great idea in the shower, but it's gone. Oh. Again, absolutely true for fiction writers as well. But then how do you decide, for a fiction writer, we have to decide what we're going to write. You know, we have all these ideas and we think, okay, well, I can only write one book at a time. So which one am I going to do? How do you decide which of all these stories to cover? Because I'm sure you have enough material that you could post a hundred times a day to Daring Fireball, but you don't, as you said, you curate quite deliberately. So how do you make that decision? It's a total gut feeling. It's, it's, it is a total feel of it, not think of it feeling most of the time i mean every once in a while something happens that i know i have to write about i remember i was on vacation with my parents and my sister and her family back in 2010 in august when apple announced that steve jobs was stepping down as ceo to become publisher and you know he ended up dying just a few months later and everybody knew that he wasn't well um and we were heading to dinner. It was probably around five o'clock in the evening. You know, my <laughs> I don't typically eat that early, but my parents do. So we were heading out to dinner on vacation. And, um, you know, it's 2010. So I had an iPhone, you know, if it had happened a few years earlier, I wouldn't have, I would have had to write about it the next day, but I got the news. Somebody texted me and I just said to my, I was like, I, I have to work. And they were like, what? And I was like, you know, I just said, you know, Steve Jobs is stepping down. And even my parents who aren't, don't really get what I do or what I write about. They're like, Ooh, you know? So every once in a while, something like that happens. And it's like, you know, I have to write about blank. Um, but for the most part, I just go by the feel of it. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's like, how do you know who you fall in love with? You know, it's like falling in love multiple times a day with, I, you know, what, what should be on daring fireball. Do you ever find that stories 
you decided not to write about kind of come back around? You know, a week or two later, you think, oh, actually, maybe I should write about that after all. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and or the ones that I remember more vividly are the ones I, th- I was like, I want to write this, but maybe it's that feels like more work. So before I do that one, that's more work. I'll write a couple of easy ones where I just make a wise crack and that's good enough. And then somebody else might beat me to a point I wanted to make. And it's, uh, that's the worst. <laughs> right. And it's like, I could have done that and I was lazy and didn't do it. Or, you know, you never know. It's like something I might have, eh, maybe I should write about, maybe not. But then, you know, further events a week or two later, drum it back up and it's, you know, ooh, that, that is worth writing about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can see that. So do you, I mean, for the shorter stuff, I'm assuming you literally just write it, rev- you know, quickly go over it, make some edits, revisions and post. For the longer pieces, for the more sort of traditional column-like pieces, and sometimes, obviously, I know those can run to a, a couple of thousand words occasionally, but for those, do you uh, get other people to read them? You know, Do you have like trusted friends or your wife or somebody to read them and cast an eye over them first, or do you trust yourself or you know, a mixture of the two? That's a great question. I probably should have somebody else look at them. My wife is an excellent writer and has a great ear, but and I shouldn't say she doesn't read what I write, but she doesn't have the interest or the obsessions that I do. So I don't really think she's the <laughs> closest reader of my writing. Sure. Um. Uh. But for the most part, I just I just read them myself. Um. I'm trying to think if that's changed over the years. It possibly has. Well, and I'm just thinking. Some, no, the, it's you a know, good cause, point because you and I both know people like Jason Snell and right. Merlin and John Syracuse and you know all these knowledgeable people who could look over something like that, and I'm sure would do that for you. But yeah, there's always a question of like, well, but do I want them to, or do I just trust my own instincts? I typically trust my own instincts, and I I am my own copy editor for better and for worse. Um, and I do, I, I do believe that in some ways I suffer from that. I think that there are surely, you know, there, cause we all know that there are some editors who are truly gifted and it is, it's as gift a unique as the ability to write in the first place to truly elevate a, a piece of prose and whether it's just spotting an awkward sentence or true structural changes of, you know, this whole section, you could just get rid of it if you move this other section up first or you're repeating yourself here and you don't need to, it's distracting from the point, that sort of thing. Um, So the longer the piece is for me, it is just me, but for me, the big trick is to switch contexts and print the draft out. Oh, wow. So you proof on paper. The longer the piece is, the more certain it is that I've printed it. Uh, and, and there is no, again, no hard and fast rule. Like, Oh, once I cross a thousand words, I have to print it before I publish it. But you know, it's probably somewhere around 2000 words. I guarantee you that I've printed it. You just get to a point where you think, okay, this is worth taking the time to go over it. Yeah. I would say at the point where if I had somebody who I did share things with at that point, I print and go to a different chair or a different room for me, it's essential to use a red pen. I, if it's not red pen, then it doesn't count as editing. <laughs> I'm the same, yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing what I'll see. And I do see more structural. Like, I, if I edit on screen, 
I really only see things like misspelled words, you know, because you get the red underscores and, you know, sentence level tweaks. Um, whereas when I read my own stuff on paper, it is much more likely that I'll cross out an entire section and just throw it out, you know. And I think one reason I might be an okay editor of my own work is that I'm not afraid to uh, throw out hundreds of my own words if necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't feel married to them if it seems to be distracting it. But it's it, that context switch to me is essential to my ability to do it. Yeah, that's, again similar sort of you know different but similar uh with fiction writing I, i'm the same before i get to the stage of sending of submitting it to a to a professional editor when i'm just editing myself uh before submission yeah i'm perfectly happy to just throw out entire chapters or move things around or whatever if need be i wonder you know and 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 you and i you know we could probably just keep repeating about how we're the same age but <laughs> I do recall, do you recall this? I recall that when I was a, a younger writer, hearing older writers of the time who were still using typewriters and were going to go to go to the end of their career doing so, I don't remember thinking that they were quacks or, wow, that's ridiculous. I remember having sympathy for them and thinking, well, I could never do that because it would drive me cr- I did use a typewriter like in high school because I didn't have a computer growing up. Um I, I, but I found it incredibly frustrating that you had to to fix something you had to retype it <laughs> or put, yeah, yeah I mean that but, was frustrating i I learned to type on a on a manual as well, and I used to write short stories and stuff on it uh, and made liberal use of tipex, shall we say <laughs> <laughs> but the thing I remember as well is and i 've mentioned this on other shows is I did some uh i mean you 'd call it an internship we called it work experience at my local my town's local newspaper. And that was back in the days when it was all manual typewriters, right. and a, a, an actual copy spike on the editor's desk that, you know, mm-hmm. everything was done on carbon paper and what have you. Uh, and you got very good very quickly because you had to at structuring, at learning the structure of a, a story of a newspaper story. I think that's the thing is that it was a lot more formulaic. Yeah. And once you knew how a story traditionally was structured you could assemble all your facts and the things you needed to say in that order so there was very little or minimal i should say at any rate uh editing that needed to happen after that fact other than as you say oh this is a line too long yeah uh, when it comes to the galley copy well i remember the thing i remember learning about the newspaper business uh and once you learned it and you were a writer, I think you had to be a writer to have that sort of um, introspection of everything you read. Even when you're the most absorbed reading, you're still, as a writer, you're still like thinking about word choices. You never totally separate yourself from the uh, admiring or whatever the opposite is, the, the actual writing of the person's work you're reading. Um when I found out that what would happen is you'd, you'd type, so you're talking about, you know, A4 sheets of paper to put it in your parlance, eight and a, you know, typewriter paper, and then it would go to a typesetter and they would typeset the article for the newspaper into a column, but it was all just one column of newspaper output, you know, little yeah. two or three inches wide, one column. And that the whole point was that the article was written so that to make it fit, they would just cut off paragraphs at the end, right? So 
<laughs> yeah. And once you find out that that's how... That's th- why you don't bury the lead. Right. So everything was written so that no matter what, even if they had to cut half of it off, it would still make sense and seem like it was properly finished. Uh, and it, it was like, oh, yeah, that is... Ac- and I, it's, it's like, the, I always call it a usual suspects moment. You know, the, it's like the end of the usual suspects when they... It's, it's just the greatest instance of that sort of the movie itself cuts to a montage going back through the movie and you the viewer of the movie the first time are like no wait and then you're doing it and you're like oh yeah that is the guy right and then all of a sudden it's like i'm 20 some years old and i've been reading newspapers that you know i'm the kid who was you know devouring the newspaper as an eight-year-old eight or nine-year-old reading newspapers and i'm like oh yeah every newspaper article i ever uh, i ever read was written like this (laughs) yeah the inverted pyramid. Inverted pyramid. Is what they call it. Where right. So you, you state the most important and complete, concise summary of the story yeah. is the first paragraph. Right. And then the next couple of paragraphs are the same thing, but with a little bit more detail and context. Right. And then everything after that is all the other extraneous details that don't really matter, but make it more interesting to read. And that, as you say, is the stuff that if they, we only need five inches of copy and you've given us eight inches, well, we'll just cut the bottom three inches off. <laughs> so so where I'm going with this is, to me, maybe me printing these things out and editing them on paper is the modern-day equivalent of the 47-year-old writer 25 years ago who was still using a typewriter. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I would suspect that there are, you know, writers in their early 20s who'd never print anything or perhaps don't even own a printer. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's wacky or wrong. I just think that for me, the mental context of writing or at least editing, it's not that it doesn't feel real if it's not printed, but it's it it my brain absorbs the words in a different way when it's on paper than when it's on a screen. Yeah. No, I mean that's the same as I mean, there are two things there that firstly, as we get older, we just become more and more reliant on the tools that we know. Um, you know, I've gotten to the point yeah. now where I don't think I will I will go to my grave writing in Scrivener because I've been using it for so many years now that I just I can't imagine writing in anything else and I don't want to write in anything else. I can do everything I want need to do in that program. Um so there's that and that's just a, a function of you know of getting old. But there's also there is the different context. You know, there is as you you like you said, move to a different room or something and mm-hmm. your your brain just looks at different contexts and reacts to them in different ways. I make all my initial story notes longhand in a a notebook. I have a moleskin. I sit down and like you, I carry it with me everywhere. And all my initial story notes for any story will go in that notebook and I write them longhand. I don't type anything until until the wheels are starting to turn, until I get to that point where I'm like, oh, okay, now I'm ready to start thinking about the real structure of this. And that's just because of the way my brain works when I'm making those longhand notes, as opposed to sitting down and typing. And as you say, maybe that's a generational Mm -hmm. thing. Maybe that's just a function of having grown up in the, you know, initially in an era before home computers, but whatever it is, it works. And as always, if it works for you, you know, then go ahead and do it. You know, it, it. everybody remembers the last, I don't know, 15 or so years of Steve Jobs' life that he always wore the same black turtleneck, uh, always wore Levi's 501 jeans and a pair of uh, New Balance 993s or 991 sneakers, something like that. 
And uh, how idiosyncratic. I mean, you know, crazy to just be a grown adult and everywhere you go, even when you're in a high profile on stage event, you dress the same. But Albert Einstein did the same thing. Albert Einstein bought like a, a drawer full of the same blue sweater and it was just, ah, I don't have to think about what to wear every day. Exactly. Right. There is something to be said for not having to think about it, right? And, and you know, everybody knows the sensation of moving to a new house or apartment or even just, like, rearranging their furniture and it in, in a place you've lived for a while. It drives me nuts for a while, right? And I, I, I really don't like it. I, I, I like to, even if it's just to wake up in the middle of the night to pee, I don't want to have to think about how to go to the bathroom, right? I, I, I just like it when you just sort of finish waking up, you're already there. That's what being familiar with your tools is like. It, and again, it is hard enough to just express these. You know you have a good idea, and it's hard enough to get it in the best words you can. Anything that gets in the way just is more likely that you're going to lose the flow of turning that idea into actual words. And if that just means you're using your familiar tools and familiar uh, brand of pen, it, it it is idiosyncratic, but that's the the limits and the the kind of the fun part of the human brain. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Every I don't want to turn this into a plug for the book, but like pretty much everything in that organized writer book and everything that I've done with my own workspace and tools over the last fifteen years is is exactly that. So that I don't have to think about those things, and I can just put all my energy and focus into, as you say, actually just getting the right words because that's hard enough. And I think the other, the flip side of it is that if you can find ones that you really like, it, it sparks joy in the mind, right? Like it's it's just the stupid little thing, like having a brand of pen that you really like. Um, because I like to take care, I like to have as few things as possible, but take as good a care of them as I can. And it brings joy to my mind and having, having a a brand of notebook that I love and a pen that I love, and I love the sensation, that idea of if I'm stuck on my writing, but if I feel like I can just think about, hey, I do love the way this pen feels on this paper, can maybe that can be the, the spark that unsticks the writing. You and I are of one mind uh, on this. You pick the one that's right for you, and then, yes, I have a cupboard full of them sitting next to me right now it i you know it makes us sound like we're precious we're you know we are the princess with the pea under the mattress uh yeah but this is a this is a professional tool right this is how we make our living right and when you talk to tradespeople, man oh man talk to somebody who works with like hammers and saws and get their opinion on brands oh, yeah. of tools they have the strongest opinions of course they do yeah that's what I say. This is our livelihood it's uh you know it's perfectly right that we should obsess over these things but as long as that obsession doesn't get in the way of you actually doing the work, right? That's always the issue, right? It is the rap the, <laughs> the <laughs> rabbit holes are to be avoided. Yes, yes, and God knows there are plenty of them. Um, all right, we should start try to wind this up. So uh, I'm gonna, and I normally ask these questions of fiction writers, so I'm really intrigued to hear what a non-fiction writer like you says in answer. So first of all, what do you think you're pretty good at? I think I'm good at analogies. I think that I and and in in that plays part in part with reducing something that at first glance is complex to divining the true narrative, the true root out of it 
take some a complex story and reduce it to here's what you really need to know to understand it. Um, I think I'm good at that. Okay. Uh, I think I have. I think I have good taste in the things that I think I have good taste about. And I also think that I'm self-aware of the things that I don't really have good taste in and I don't, therefore, don't try to assert that I do. <laughs> Areas where your judgment shouldn't be trusted, like, yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, so what do you wish you were better at? Hmm. I wish that I were better at a – this is easy, actually, and I – I wish I were better at getting into the flow uh, and maintaining it. To me, being in a state where I'm ready to be productive writing is like, it really truly is like building a house of cards. And it it takes a while to get into it and is easily destroyed. And that's to my detriment. And I feel I, I've, I'm 47, so I'm probably not going to get better at it. But I can't help but feel that I should be able to, and that it is a a, a moral failing that I'm a, that I that I somehow can't force myself to be a bit more disciplined in that regard. I mean, if it is, then you've got an awful lot of company. Believe me. <laughs> Well, you read about some writers, though, and it, you know, and and a lot of these behind the scenes things are often about fiction. But I'm addicted to like the stories in the the Paris Review, where you you know, and 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 I love the older I get, the more that like you read, you know, some interview with Hemingway about how he worked, and it's you know, at this point, it's like a hundred years ago, and it's like now that I'm older, and even though a hundred years is a long time, it's like I see, it's like ah man, nothing's changed. It's the same no. thing. But I, you read about some writers who like wake up at six in the morning and they have, eat half a grapefruit and one pot of, make one pot of coffee and then they write nonstop until 11.30 when they have a sandwich and then they answer their correspondence and run some errands and then edit their own work at five in the afternoon and they do it every day. And it's like, man, that sounds, I, I see why you get, if you can get into a flow like that, I could see it, but I just don't, I, it never works for me like that. But that's routine. That's not flow. I yeah. am fairly, I, I do have a fairly set routine like that. But what I can tell you is that, you know, when somebody says, oh, okay, I sit down at my desk at six in the morning and I'll write until 11, they're not literally writing that whole time. What they mean right. is that that's the time they've apportioned to write. They might still spend half of it staring out the window, wishing that they could get on with it. There, There is a bit of advice, and I do think, oh, God, this is terrible to misquote Hemingway, but I do think it's from Hemingway, um, but the general notion is true. But I think it's a Hemingway thing, where his general idea was to write until you run out of gas, but don't don't write until you're entirely out of gas. Be aware of it, and always leave yourself at a spot where you'll know where to pick it up the next day. Yeah. and. Man, for me, that was a thunderclap of, whoa, that is super, it sounds super obvious, but I don't do that. And, oh my God, that's going to be so super helpful. And I find that super helpful, both when I'm writing a longer piece that takes multiple days of full day effort to work, to leave myself at a spot where I'll know where to pick it up the next day. And even in the context of normal Daring Fireball content, I might not write a post the night before i'll just leave myself a note to hey post about this tomorrow because then i'll know i'll have one to post in the morning that i know i want to write 
and I'll know where I can do it. And it's also surprising how often when I do that, I also come up with, uh, I will post it, but I'll come up with a better way of writing what I wanted to write anyway. Uh, yes. Yeah. Sleeping on it. Yeah. It, 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 that's a real thing. Yeah. But leaving yourself, leaving yourself a gift, your tomorrow self, a gift of, you know, like just, it's like leaving a sandwich, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, look at this. Somebody left me a sandwich. It, I don't have to make lunch. It's right there. Here it is. It's like, it, it is a, it's like a gift from your yesterday self to your today self. It, and it never fails to try to get back in the flow quicker. But man, that is the, that's the thing I wish I were better at. And there's one of your analogies. Uh, <laughs> I won't comment on the quality of it. So, John, where can people find you online? Really, I'll, if uh, you probably should stay away from my Twitter, but it's at Gruber. <laughs> <laughs> I I have I have serious up my Twitter uh, to some degree. Uh, I used to just use it as a pure id uh, outlet and. Uh, it just feels like a lot of the fun has been drained out of Twitter slowly but surely over the years. Yeah. And so I don't use it that way as much anymore. And so I feel like my I years ago when I would tell people that they probably shouldn't they shouldn't assume they're going to like me on Twitter if they like me on Daring Fireball was a lot more true then than it is now. But I'm at Gruber on Twitter and Daring Fireball. You could just Google and it'll take you to the website. Did, did you buy DaringFireball.com as well? I, I did. I know the canonical URL is DaringFireball.net, isn't it? I bought them both at the same time and chose. I I, I used DaringFireball.net, not .com by choice, not because I couldn't get the .com. I've had both, and .com is redirected to .net all along. And uh, I don't know why. I feel it's partly of being coming of age in the 90s on the internet where I felt like, Dot com felt like you were supposed to be selling stuff or you're a corporation of some sort. It just felt like the com was commercial and org was you were some sort of organization. Edu explains itself. You were a school. Dot net seemed to me like the one that just meant a thing on the internet. I always, I, it's, Totally, it just one of those things like a writer having a preference for one word over another. I a huge pet peeve of mine is when people say people that people that like ice cream. I can't stand it. <laughs> to me, it's people who <laughs> like ice cream, even though it is by the rules of the English language perfectly acceptable. Drives me nuts every time somebody says it or writes it. It is like nails on a chalkboard to me. It, I'm not going to say that .com is nails on a chalkboard, but it just doesn't feel right to me. But I realize that I'm way out, way outside the mainstream and having an opinion on this. Yeah, you're kind of out on a limb, yeah. Yeah, to most people, (laughs) .com is nothing, right? .com is just the generic, you know. It's the default. Right. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a blast. I don't really get to talk about how I do what I do very often, and it's nice to have an area to do it where it's it's not so... uh, (laughs) (laughs) self-conscious yeah we are anything but self-conscious and thank you all out there for listening to writing and breathing if you enjoyed the show why not become a patreon supporter patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they're published can take part in q a episodes and more so go to patreon.com slash writing and breathing to make your pledge today if you want to get in touch go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and twitter 
and that is also where you will find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time. Talking about your technology background, you, and not everybody knows this, I know, but for anybody out there listening who uses Slack, you know when you do things like type asterisks around a word or underscores around the word and it becomes bold or italic, you know, you've seen that sort of thing. This is the man who invented that formatting uh, and a way to turn that markup or markdown, as you called it, into styled text. Why? How? How did that come about? I mean, did you invent it just for your own work? Because I know you use that when you write Daring Fireball. Or was it just, you know, did that come about after having come up with the idea itself? So I have to correct you first. Number one, Slack Slack does use a very markdown-like thing, but they don't. (laughs) But for whatever odd reason... They don't. They have their own differences. So when you put asterisks around something, it's bold. But it, if it was following Markdown, it would be italic, and you'd oh, have that's to true, use actually, two yes, asterisks, yes. right? And 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 they have like a fact about it because apparently a lot of people, not just me, the guy who invented <laughs> it, and they have a silly fact where they try to explain it. But basically, it comes down to somebody inside Slack didn't like it the markdown way and right. made their own way but well, anyway and underscores why? for italics were used to be common on usenet or for emphasis right. used to be common on usenet yeah. remember so you can you know you can see it. but the point is that that concept originated with markdown right and how did it come to be it's a longer story but mostly fueled selfishly uh, very selfishly about this is how I, I wanted to write the way I, I would write so when i started daring fireball in 2002 and the it doesn't really matter. I'm actually still using it, but I use a CMS called Movable Type, which has greatly fallen out of disfavor. It's not even developed in under active development anymore. But it's effectively if you it, it, WordPress ate its soup. It's WordPress but older. Um, and the basic way that people running Movable Type or any other of the blogging systems at the time would write is you would write your article or post, whatever you, you know, you would actually write the actual HTML. So if you wanted to italicize a word, you would select the word and wrap it in the HTML I tag, put the angle bracket I, angle bracket, and then the closing one around it. And if you wanted to make a link, you'd learn that it's the A tag, which stands for anchor, and then href equals quote, then the URL quote, and all this stuff. And you know everybody would learn the basics of HTML, and that's what you would write. You would actually type the characters as you wrote and put them in. And then if you made a mistake and forgot something, it would just go right through. So like if you forgot to close a link, well, then the whole article would be the link because oh, it yes. was never closed. <laughs> um and then they had a thing in movable type and every other system had something similar. I forget what they called it. It was like smart paragraphs or something like that. And the idea with smart paragraphs was you wouldn't have to put the P tags around every paragraph. Every single paragraph in HTML has a P tag around it, just, just the letter P. Um, but how monotonous, right? You write an eight paragraph post and you have eight 
these P tags around every single thing. So the smart paragraph mode would just be like, well, if you just type two returns and have a blank line, we'll just assume that that was a paragraph. And I think a lot of people used it. It certainly saved you the single most common thing you'd have to do is paragraphs, right? Because even if you didn't italicize anything or put any links in your post, you would still have paragraphs. Um, But I didn't use it because it was like, it wasn't smart enough, right? It's smart. It's just like a lot of the features that have the word smart. It's like, dude, a lot of the time it is smart. And a lot of the time they're telling you it's smart because it's not smart at all. Right, every every feature in anything See, also that's smart ever called, speakers. yeah, every it's either a complete lie or it's truly brilliant. Well, the smart paragraphs in movable type were not smart, and I thought, well, how? What do I do? And so I started writing scripts where I would write my posts not in the form that movable, you know, in my CMS. I would write them in a text editor, and then when I was done, I would have scripts that would turn what I wrote into the HTML copy it, paste it, and then post it into the CMS and go up. Um, So it was sort of like a very early primitive version of Markdown. Like I was writing using these things that I liked to see and that were easier to type. Then I would transform them into HTML, copy it, paste it, and then it was in there. Well, one of the problems with that, though, is that once you go to edit anything, once you've posted it, now you're back into editing raw HTML. Mm. Uh, elsewhere, my friend, uh, who's uh, unfortunately since passed away, Dean Allen, who wrote a website called Textism, uh, which was very popular, uh, precursor to Daring Fireball, huge inspiration for me at Daring Fireball. He was a terrific designer, came from the print world as well, and an unbelievably good writer. Uh, ended up writing his own CMS called Text Pattern, and he wrote something that is very much like Markdown in spirit called textile. I don't know if you recall hearing of it, but yes, um, yes, I do. I think he came out within like 2001 or maybe early 2002, something like that. And um, textile was sort of in the spirit of Markdown, but had many, many differences. Uh, And then he started working on like textile two, And um, uh, with somebody named Brad Choate, who worked at the company that made movable type and Brad made a version of textile that worked in movable type. And I thought, Ooh, this might be better, but I didn't like it enough. It wasn't good enough, but I knew Dean and Dean and Brad were working on the new version of textile. And I had like a whole bunch of ideas and I wrote them to Dean because I was friends with them and he just wrote back and it was very Dean Allen, like observation where rather than tackle this, you know, one or two page list of ideas, he just wrote back and said, these ideas are great, but this sounds like a new thing. You should just build that. Yeah, and it would like, be simpler oh. for you to just make this yourself. <laughs> yeah, and so that, that's what I did. And so I just thought, well, what do I want to see when I write? How do I want to write and then just have it turn into HTML automatically behind the scenes? And that's what Markdown is. And yeah, it's uh, and it's become so ubiquitous. It's I mean, that must be just weird to see how... You know, you talk about the sort of the validation that we all get as writers when we know that yeah. lots of people are reading our work. And so many people are now using either Markdown itself or a system Something that very, is very similar. clearly right. inspired, yeah, you right. know, by Markdown. And many of those people don't have any idea who you are because yeah. it doesn't necessarily have your name on it. That must be a very right. strange feeling. It is very strange. It's gratifying largely. Um 
in the very early time, and it's a it's it's had a very strange pattern of uh, uh, path or graph, if you will, of success. Where I think I released it in early two thousand four, at the end of two thousand three, was when I had like beta versions of it. So I'd been writing Daring Fireball for a little over a year, um, and I released Markdown. And I thought I really had something. I was like, this is so great. I, I love this. Uh, my top beta tester, the one person who truly got it from a very early stage while I was creating it was uh, Aaron Swartz, who also has unfortunately passed away tragically. Um, very sad. Everybody <laughs> involved with Markdown is creation is passed away. Um, so I don't mean to bring the podcast down, but uh, Aaron was brilliant. He was an activist, uh, uh, did all sorts of uh, so many things. He was a co-founder of Reddit. I mean, it's 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 in, you know in the same way that like you you might know Markdown but not know who I am. You you know Reddit. You know Aaron Schwartz's work. Aaron got it, but Aaron had a tool he wrote called ATX, and it was sort of a Markdown type thing. You know, where you type, you just type sort of punctuation characters and it turns into HTML. Never took off. He kind of lost interest in it, but it had a couple of ideas that were worth stealing. And I just, there were a whole bunch of tools like Markdown before Markdown. And I just did like a copious deep dive and took every single good idea from all of them that I could. <laughs> and when I had something that at least kind of sort of worked, I, um, you know, reached out to some people to beta test. And most people, the initial reaction to everybody I knew was, every because everybody I knew was a nerd enough that they knew how to write raw HTML. And the pushback I always got was, why not just write raw HTML? I don't, you know, why introduce this new layer of abstraction when you could just write HTML? And, you know, people were more polite, but that was the gist of it. But Aaron got it because he'd written his thing before and he was like, oh yeah, this is so much better. And help me, you know, with the with clarify my ideas. Um, I, I'd say there was in, high, in memory. I'm going to call it about four or five months. Maybe it was more like six months. At some point, I want to dig back into my old email and and sort of publish the emails between me and Aaron and on how Markdown came to be. One of the reasons I put it off is it just seems painful because he's gone. But yeah, it's been so many years now where it's not quite so painful. But there were about four or five months where it was under active development by me. And I, and I was writing, here's the, here's the, the, why, where I'm going with this is I was writing daring fireball using it for me as I developed it. And I, and I think this is instrumental in how it came to be so good where it, like my first crack at here's what, here's, here's the entirety of the rules of markdown was not very good. It was a good start, and whatever those rules were, I don't remember the specifics and how they differ from where I wound up. But um, you'd say, oh, yeah, I could see how that was the early stages. But it wasn't good enough, and the way I figured out it was good enough, though, was by actually writing Daring Fireball on a weekly, daily basis and running into things like, ah, this could be better. This is a pain in the ass. This is a, That just looks ugly, or I can't remember how to do blank. Uh, and so I'd fix it, but then whenever I'd fix it, I would have to go back and edit all, all of the last three, four, you know, as time went on, there were more and more articles where I would have to go back and fix what I had written to adapt to the new version of the software. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? 
Like there, there was a period of time where, you know, I had to, <laughs> it was like this ever building stack of cards where I'd have to go back to the bottom of the stack and make sure that I hadn't used uh, this syntax idea because it wasn't supported anymore and I have to fix it. That's um, why they call it eating your own dog food. You know, it's right, necessary, but, but it ain't truly, nice. <laughs> it is truly why Markdown became, you know, what it is. But then I released it and I really thought, man, I just knew it. I knew it from, because I've been living with it. I had been living with it. I was like, this is so much better. It alleviates, it, it just lets you concentrate on the actual writing and none of the mechanics of HTML or the formatting. And you, it's just so much easier. And all you have to do is concentrate on the words, which as a writer is hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was just sort of like crickets chirping. And it, you know, it wasn't like it disappeared into the ether, but it just didn't really take off. And Aaron was super excited about it, and he got it on Boing Boing, which was a super popular website at the time. And I don't want to say nobody used it, but it was so much less popular for the first couple of years than I thought it would be. And I found that very depressing. I just, I just thought, hey, I don't know what I could have done better. And, and then there was never one moment like where blank supported Markdown and all of a sudden it exploded in popularity. It was just the longest, slowest ramp up and, you know, and then, but then a slowly escalating, you know, at a, at an escalating pace until all of a sudden it's everywhere. And then all of a sudden it's everywhere, but it's just sort of like nobody even talks about who made it. It's just Markdown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you search, I mean, one way to see how popular it is is to type Markdown into the App Store and search and just look for apps that build themselves as Markdown editors. Yeah. I mean, it, you'll, you won't get through them all. I mean, it's, there are it's, many. It, it's, you go down to the bottom and hit next. Now you, you'll just get tired of hitting next in the list of apps. My friend uh, Michael Lopp, who writes the Rands and Repose yeah, website yeah. and friends for a very long time, we are we both have the exact same taste in pens. We like the Zebra Sarasa zero point five millimeter. They're they're gel ink pens from Japan. Uh, here in the U.S., there's a very common one from Pilot called the G two, which is sold everywhere. It's almost the exact same pen. Um, I forget the other company. Pentec has one. All the Japanese pen makers have a gel ink pens that are almost identical. And most people would say they are the exact same pen and they wouldn't notice the difference. Yeah, but they're, they're not. <laughs> the gel ink are my favorite style of pen. I can't stand a ballpoint pen. But if you like a ballpoint, I totally get why you do because it's a very different feel. It has a little stickiness to it instead of a flow. But Wop and I, we if you get us going over like a martini or something like that, and we'll we'll talk your ear off for two hours about the Zebra Sarasa in particular <laughs> versus two or three other <laughs> brands of name brand, not even going to like the store brand pens, but name brand from Pilot or Uniball uh, and why we like it better and that it's, you know, more consistent, like, you know, maybe the Uniball one. I remember the Uniball Signo is their version. Sometimes you start writing and it misses the first stroke. 
because you have to kind of warm it up a little before it goes. Well, that, that drives me crazy. And But having a pen that you know is your favorite and it's the best, and I've got like 300 of them <laughs> around my yep, office. Yep. Uh, <laughs> It, it knowing that you love it and you're, it's like, you know what? Like, even if I'm stuck or I feel like I'm, I'm just not getting the words out right, if I know that I've got the best possible pen and they, you know, they, they cost like $2 each. They're, they're just supposedly disposable. But I also, the other thing I like to do with them, even though they only cost $2 each and I own about 300 of them, is I like to keep them as long as I possibly can. And I, I usually, uh, I don't lose them. I usually, they, they get all the way to the end and they run out of ink and I have to go to a new one. You and I are of one mind uh, on this, except that I am a uniball, 0.7 ballpoint user. <laughs> 